0: When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. He then gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 besides women and children. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night he was there alone Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Our next reading comes from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34. We're going from verse 11, and we'll stop after verse 24. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the, rav- in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land." There they will lie down in a good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend, to, will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock... This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend to them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Ellie. Um, Please keep your Bibles open. or turn them back to uh, Matthew chapter 14, uh, which is our uh, uh, passage for tonight. Still a bit of a hot and muggy day, so uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer especially that we'd concentrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us in your Word, the Bible. Please help us to concentrate, uh, to rejoice and tremble at your Word. And Father, we ask that you would move powerfully by your Holy Spirit as we consider this part of your Word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God Uh, for these jews these disciples who worshipped God alone that was an extraordinary event a bit of a climax at this part of Matthew's gospel and for us as the saved people of God it is also our experience we are those who confess with our mouth that jesus christ christ being son of god jesus christ is lord and we therefore are those who continually offer up our whole selves as a living sacrifice to god which is now the true meaning of worship but what does it actually mean to say that jesus is the son of god Once upon a time, and in some context, that was kind of the way you said you're a Christian. Yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what is it that rightly compels us to worship Jesus as the Son of God? The Gospel writer Matthew wants us to be clear on both these fundamental and basic tenets of the faith. What it means to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and why it's fitting to worship Him as the son of God. And to get us there, he begins by giving us this huge contrast between the rule of this guy named Herod and, of course, the rule of Jesus. Now, we learned about Herod in the first half of chapter 14, but that was just a little while ago, 10 months actually, since we've looked at this part of Matthew's Gospel. So, here's a super quick refresher from 10 months ago. Herod Antipas, we've got to call him his Antipas name because there's lots of Herods floating around the place in the Bible time. Herod Antipas was a son of Herod the Great. Uh, He liked to think of himself as a king, but in reality he was uh, a tetrarch, which literally means a ruler of a quarter who the Romans had kind of established for him to rule over this this particular area. And like most power-hungry people with great insecurities, he was a bit of a bully. He'd taken his own brother's wife for himself, while the brother was still alive, and her name's also a bit of a Herod name, her name is Herodias. He'd taken her, and when John the Baptist knew about that, he came and said, oi, you shouldn't be doing that. And so what does this Herod do? Well, he doesn't like what John the Baptist says, chucks him in prison. So, this guy wants to do what he wants to do, the prophet does his right job, which is to bring the king, or in this case, tetrarch, in line with the Word of God and he just bullies him. Then, at one of Herod Antipas's lavish banquets, his stepdaughter, which I think could also be his niece, gave an entertaining dance that pleased him so much that he promised her a reward of whatever she wanted, up to half his kingdom quarter that he would give her. Prompted by her evil adulterous mother, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, I suspect a lot of you have heard this story before or are familiar with it, the beheading of John the Baptist. Now Herod did not want to kill John but his desire to save face in front of his guests was far greater than his desire to follow his God-given conscience and so he did murder the last and greatest Old Testament prophet and had his head brought in on an ice plate which of course is a disgusting and bloody display of worldly so-called power. Now when this Herod started hearing about Jesus and what Jesus was doing, He entertained the notion that Jesus could somehow be the embodiment of John's ghost. John the Baptist is risen from the dead, that's why miraculous powers are at work in him, said Herod and thus Herod added pagan superstition to all his many evils and corruptions. So that's Herod Antipas, power-hungry, morally corrupt, bully, adulterer and murder, who enjoys I think being in the limelight. And with that background, we come to the second half of chapter 14, which is our sort of re-entry into Matthew's Gospel for, for this part of the series. And it begins, verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened. That is, when Jesus had heard this stuff about Herod beheading John the Baptist. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And later on, we're going to find out the reason he wants to do that is to pray to his heavenly Father. But, continuing verse 13, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. See, Jesus knew that John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the warm-up act for the main event. John's gruesome murder at the hands of sinful worldly powers would have been this horrible foreshadowing of the fate that was now very close for Jesus and understandably then Jesus would have felt the great weight of his soon-to-come death which he knew would be much worse even than what happened to John the Baptist. It's the kind of thing that made Jesus want to go to a solitary place and, and speak and ask help from his Heavenly Father. Now I know that when something's weighing really heavily on me, I don't want to deal with people. I want to withdraw. I want to be by myself and, and hopefully get things a bit sorted so I can at least feel marginally better and, and well enough to face the day or face the job that, that, that's at hand. But when Jesus, whose burden was significantly larger than any of you or I will ever possibly know, when Jesus saw that needy crowd before Him, despite His great desire to have time to Himself... He instead chose to meet their needs. And it wasn't reluctant. It says there he had compassion on them. And the word used here in the original language is a very intense adjective of longing and care. Jesus was longing to meet their needs above his own very real and and very intense need. He would sacrifice self-interest for the sake of others. The polar opposite of Herod, who would sacrifice others for the sake of his own self-interest. So that's Jesus' attitude compared to the attitude of Herod. But what about Jesus' authority? Herod wanted to make himself out to be a king when he was merely a tetrarch. Jesus makes himself out to be a lowly servant when his power is actually at the level of well, let's see. Verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now that is an absolutely outrageous and ridiculous command. Knowing there's somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people and almost no food, Jesus commands His attendants to feed the lot of them. The disciples, just like I suspect you and I would, point out the sheer preposterousness of such a command. Verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. And when I preached this this morning, that sly got an amazing laugh, but you guys are of the wrong generation, I suppose. <laughs> but as is always the case, Jesus proves his authority to give such a command. Verse 18. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and by the way, I've got no idea of the mechanics of this miracle, whether or not it's like the packet of Tim Tams that never runs out, you just like put one out, another one comes, I don't know, we're not told, But that's not the point. But the point is, verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So Jesus was right. The crowd didn't need to leave. And it was reasonable for Him to issue that command that His servants would feed the entire crowd. Now, you can't not think of the ancient Israelites, can you, when you see this little event? you remember the ancient Israelites? They wandered in the wilderness. They were fed by God, yet through the servant Moses, you know, the manna and the quail. And uh, they were broken up into 12 tribes. Here we've got 12 basketfuls. It's kind of alluding to that experience. And we're also right to remember that Jesus, in his compassion on the crowds, now seated on the grass, we're told, interestingly kind of sounds like that shepherd that we heard about in Ezekiel 34 and it's a strange kind of thing because the shepherd is the Lord, I will shepherd my people and yet it's the servant of the Lord, King David, I will set up David and so we've kind of got Moses who's the servant and, and, and yet God and we kind of got David who's the servant and, and yet Yahweh and in both these sort of things you've got this weird mixture of the supernatural power and the authority of God Himself yet exercised through the lowly and faithful human servant. Is Jesus the lowly servant who places the needs of others above his own? The answer must be yes. And yet at the very point of doing so, does he exercise the supernatural and inexplicable power of God Almighty? Well, the answer is also yes. You see, Jesus wants his disciples to know that he can rightly give the command to distribute some kid's lunch to thousands of people and expect an abundance of leftovers. By his ridiculous command, he's showing that he's what you might call the God-man shepherd, the highest of authorities doing the most selfless of services. By the way, this is the point that Satan gets it wrong. You remember all the way back, the temptation of Jesus by the devil in, in chapter 4 of Matthew? You know, the first thing that the devil says to Jesus when he comes to him is, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. See, Satan knew that the true Son of God would have all the power and authority of Yahweh himself and could therefore indeed command the stones. To become bread and Jesus could have successfully made such a command but given that it was to suit his own very real hunger such a command would have been self-serving rather than done in the humble sacrificial service of others hence Jesus rejected Satan by quoting the words of Moses the humble servant of the Lord from Deuteronomy that man does not live on bread alone but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God but back to the loaves and the fish here it so happens that of all people, the Apostle Peter starts to clue in on what's going on. You've got to appreciate this moment. Peter doesn't always get it right, but here he's actually doing all right. He starts to work out that Jesus issuing such a ridiculous command was actually a way of revealing both his divine authority, yet also his servant-like lowliness the two qualities that the jews might have come to expect in the long-awaited messiah the son of god and so peter looks for an opportunity to see jesus issue another outrageous command that might confirm his identity as both somehow the lord god and yet the shepherd the son of man who is yet the suffering servant Luckily for Peter, it happens in the next scene, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Sounds a bit like Moses going up on a mountainside to speak with God. So finally, Jesus gets a bit of that precious me time that we call it these days, to presumably process the murder of John the Baptist and the burden it rightly placed upon him. But yet again, his plans are, humanly speaking, after a while at least, partially foiled by the needs of others. Continuing in verse 23, later that night he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, friends, it's significant to note that uh, that little bit where Jesus says, it is I, uh, literal way it works in the original language is he's saying, I am, which is the Hebrew translation for Yahweh, the name of God. Take courage, I am, says Jesus. Herod in a manner of speaking thought Jesus was a ghost and in response Jesus shows himself to be the lowly shepherd who yet had all the power and authority of Yahweh. Now his disciples are afraid that he is a ghost and so again like Moses praying on the mountain and yet like Yahweh who tramples the surging seas Jesus will show himself again to be fully divine and yet the fully human Messiah. Peter picks up that this is what Jesus is doing. And so just as it was with the loaves and the fish, he asks Jesus to give yet another outrageous, ridiculous command. And that would show him, therefore, that Jesus was not only the faithful servant of Yahweh, but also Yahweh himself. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. There's a ridiculous thing to want Jesus to command. Now, when Satan said, if you are the son of God, tell the stones to become bread, that was because Satan was tempting him for Jesus to be uh, not doing what the Christ came to do, serving himself rather than others. But when Peter asks him to issue this miraculous command, it is actually to be serving of Peter, I want to know if you're the Son of God and so Jesus is very happy to agree to Peter's request. He does it in one word, come, Jesus said. It's like Peter's saying, Lord, you commanded us to feed thousands using a few loaves and a couple of fish and like only God could, you proved that that was a legit thing to command. Now that you're walking on water during the storm, do it again so that I can believe. Give me a command that only God could give, even though you're clearly a man. And Jesus was only too happy to oblige and again, His command was shown to be legitimate. Verse 29, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Peter was therefore at the point where he could recognise Jesus as both the humble servant and yet the all-powerful Lord. The expectations of Israel's Messiah ran along both those trajectories. So it must be the case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And what did that Son of God come to do or verse 30 but when he Peter saw the wind he was afraid and beginning to sink cried out Lord save me which of course is exactly what the Christ the Son of God came to do and it's also exactly what you and I need by the way see as Peter discovered that day you can have all the evidence in the world that Jesus is the divine Lord he is God And he has yet come down as the humble shepherd you can have that put right in front of you in an outrageous kind of manner and even then you can yet struggle with ongoing doubts i wonder if there's someone like that here tonight you know the truth deep down jesus really is who he says he is and you kind of want to follow him but it's like i just i I feel this reluctance to commit well don't worry you're in good company (laughs) Even if the evidence is put out on a plate right in front of you, it's hard for some people, right? Peter included. You see, our faith, that is our trust, our reliance, even that is tainted by our sinful rebellion against what God has revealed to be absolutely plain and simple and true. That's why it's wonderful that the thing that the Son of God came to do Was to save us from our sin, to save us from our sin that results in certain death and judgment, in the chaos that easily envelops us, but that God can walk over and can even grant saved people can walk over with him. The Son of Man, who turned out to be the Son of God, came not to be served, but to serve and to do what was necessary to save sinners. And so, verse 31 immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. It is almost certain that what Jesus says here, by the way, is, is not so much a harsh rebuke as it is a kind of like a longing for Peter to embrace what he's already worked out to be true. It's like Jesus is saying, mate, you were already there, you're walking on the water, come on, you can totally trust that I am who I say I am. And that's pretty much what happened with all the disciples at the climax of this part of Matthew's Gospel, verse 33, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying truly you are the Son of God. Maybe Jesus is kind of like that for you at the moment. Mate, come on, you know I am who I am. You know, you don't need any more evidence. For goodness sake, do the only logical thing, repent and put your faith In me. The last time that these guys were in a boat with Jesus kicking around and a big storm, another story that I suspect most of you know, remember how it ended? They said, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him, right? Everyone knows that story. This time, they got Jesus, a boat and a storm but this time they say, truly you are the Son of God and they become worshippers of this Christ. They become worshippers of the one who is somehow both the servant of the Lord and yet who exercises all the power and authority that only Yahweh himself could exercise. There are some days I wish I could exercise that power and authority and poof, take away whatever the heck it is on the roof and make them just fall dead on their face. If that's a bird, someone get a shotgun, please. Or get a cat and chuck it up there to chase it. Anyway. (laughs) Friends, what it is to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God or as the Christ is exactly these two things. It's to say, yes, you are the shepherd, the lowly servant... The one who reflects the character of God who comes to lovingly, sacrificially give the needs of others. And yet at one and the same time, there is no question that he is none other than Yahweh, God himself. As a matter of fact, that's kind of our key point for the night. As the Son of God, which we shorten just to, we use the word Christ, as the Christ, Jesus has all the power and authority of God And yet, he exercises his power power as a humble servant of others. To be not just a Christ, but the Christ, Jesus had all the glory, all the power of Yahweh, who, by the way, does not share his glory with another. And yet, he had all the lowliness of the despised and rejected servant who would sacrificially meet the needs of God's chosen people. When we acknowledge Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, That's what we're actually saying. And of course it makes sense that we would therefore worship him as God alone. You would be an absolute fool not to worship him as Christ. Because he is the most powerful person in the universe and he has chosen to use his power to lay down his life in order to pay the eternal penalty for your sin and for mine. Herod, not to mention any other human ruler, has nowhere near such power and nowhere near such servant heartedness. You and I have nowhere near such power and nowhere near such servant heartedness. We are far worse masters over ourselves than what Jesus is. Self rule is always on the spectrum between deception and torture if you're your own master you live somewhere between deception and torture but when you come under Jesus rule you find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light and so if you ask someone who prior to now perhaps hasn't understood what it means to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, what good reason could you possibly still have for refusing right now to repent and place yourself under his all-powerful rule? What good reason do you have for not doing what these disciples did? That is, say, truly, Jesus, you are. The son of God and I will worship you. See, whether you realise it or not, whether you can admit it or not, absolutely everyone without exception is mastered by someone or something. For us in our time and culture, we've got the false god of self-determinism and autonomy, I'm the boss, I choose what's right and wrong. For some of us, it's the false god of financial security and materialism for some it's the false god of pleasure popularity happiness the minimization of pain that's the thing that we're mastered by every single person is enslaved to someone or to something and if the someone is yourself yeah it's terrible It's, it's somewhere between deception and torture and there is no other person so infinitely powerful and yet so infinitely kind and loving that you could ever possibly know than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So make the only same choice, the choice that the disciples here made, become a worshipper of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the call of the Gospel, that's what the Gospel writers are writing their stuff ultimately for and the result, by the way, is eternal life. Now, if you're not sure whether or not you've done that, it might help to remember that the evidence you're a worshipper of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that you remain a 24-7 worshipper of the Son of God. See, it's not hard for people to fall into the trap of being what we we call Sunday Christians. People who are unashamed to acknowledge, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, when you're with like-minded people or when you're at church or when it suits, but in other contexts do simply revert to living their own life their own way without regard for the loving Lordship of God's Son. We don't make it any easier on ourselves when we keep referring to the activity of gathered Christians as worship, or even worse, the congregational singing as worship. That's just muddies the water. Being a worshipper of Jesus is a 24-7 thing. But no matter how many times we fail, which all of us will, our heart's desire, if we are His, will be to keep coming back and living under Jesus' rule rather than our own. To keep repenting of sin and growing in righteousness rather than being the Sunday Christian. If you're worried about falling into the trap of being the Sunday Christian, well, praise God if you've got that worry. That's really good because that means it concerns you. You want to be a 24-7 worshipper of Jesus. If you're not worried about it, start. Start. <laughs> long time ago, I think it was late 90s, on the radio, I remember hearing there was this ad to try and help people establish whether or not they were alcoholics. It was a very clever ad, I don't know if you call it an ad, I don't, like a, a health initiative that, that took the, the place of an ad. And there was this serious voice and the questions were not do you drink lots of alcohol or something like that or do you find yourself hangover, no, no, none of that. The questions were, when you put out the recycle bin do you find that there's a whole lot of bottles in there and you haven't had many people over isn't that a clever question because it bypasses what people would want to immediately deny and be defensive of and it just gives them something an external tangible observable bit of evidence to go oh yeah there are a lot of bottles in there and we haven't had anyone oh maybe i am right now alcoholism is a dreadful thing and I'm not going to go into that now. But you can do a similar thing when it comes to self-diagnosing whether or not you're a 24-7 worshipper of Jesus. I want to be really careful here because there's always people that have a really sort of fragile uh, conscience and can feel immediately guilty as soon as you start saying, what's the evidence of your conversion? Oh no, I'm not good enough, right? But that's okay, feeling guilty is a really wonderful sign (laughs) if it means you. You want to be a worship of Jesus. But the question I'd ask, instead of bottles in your recycle bin, is something like this, since this time last Sunday, have you once thought of your own will and volition to speak to your Heavenly Father in prayer? Has prayer been something that's happened this week? That's a pretty good one. Have you once, of your own will, just once, thought I might read the Bible? If the answer is no, that's not a fail-safe indicator, but it could be a helpful indicator that you've got to go, oh, am I one of those people that kind of only gives lip service to Jesus as Lord, but I'm not actually a worshipper of the Son of God? Now, if that makes you, like I said, feel like you've got a prick conscience, don't be crippled by that. Be thankful. That means God is sort of putting the the, the weight on you to say, oi, take this seriously. And that's a beautiful thing, because if you didn't care and you didn't take it seriously, then you're definitely not a worshipper, you don't care. Now, assuming you are a person who worships Jesus Christ, the Son of God, well then, you and me will want to grow to be more and more like Him. Here we see that the one with all the power and authority of Yahweh would yet choose, what did he do, to put others first, even when it costs him personally. He wanted to be by himself, sees the crowd and he has gut-wrenching compassion on them. And yes, we are commanded to serve others, likewise, in a way that's sacrificial, especially the household of God. And to serve others when it's easy, doesn't really count for much. In the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, namely Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? No, says Jesus. You've got to love and serve when it is costly to do so because that is what He does. As a matter of fact, He would serve you and me by the ultimate cross of facing the judgment, the wrath of God in His death on the cross so that you and I don't have to. Uh, Most of you guys know that part of my job is to be the uh, uh, the the overseer of the youth ministry in our church and I'm delighted to say that uh, Grace Youth is starting up again this coming Friday, Youth Bible Study next Sunday. one of the wonderful things that I kind of get to see every now and then is I, I get to see someone who's, you know, within, in high school age make a decision or choose something that pits them against the majority of their peers and that I just know would have been a hard thing for them to do. Every now and then I see it. It's like someone's, I'm going to quit my job because they keep getting me to work on Fridays when youth is on or Sundays which I know that's a hard thing and I rejoice when I those things are the measures of how well this ministry is doing I look for people who go I really want to do this thing but I want to obey Jesus more and so I've made a decision that hurts when I see a decision that hurts that's when I rejoice and praise God not because I'm sadistic and I want to see people hurt but I you know that's how it is as a follower of Jesus we we take up the cross he says if you want to be my disciple What's something that will cost you, something that will require sacrifice in order for you to love and serve others if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord? You might think it's burdensome but in the end it actually brings reward from our Heavenly Father which is far more satisfying than anything else this fallen world can ever afford us. With that, let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, who shows himself to be the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has all the power and authority of Yahweh alone, and yet is the humble, suffering servant. Who is moved to great compassion and gives up his own comfort and his own interest in order to meet the greatest needs of those that he loves and serves which includes us heavenly father for anyone here tonight that does not know the amazing love and the amazing power of jesus christ the son of god would you be so kind and so merciful as to turn them in repentance and faith as to bring them over that threshold the thing that whatever holds them back to to take that away that they would stand firm in the faith, both now and on the last day, that they would become 24 seven worshipers of Jesus Christ, just like those disciples did that day. And heavenly father, as worshippers of Jesus, may we too be so willing to take up our cross and follow him, to make decisions that are costly and sacrificial and painful in order to be like him and so to enjoy the wonderful reward that awaits us in eternity with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.